This is Macro Horizons, episode 72. What Recession? Presented by BMO Capital Markets. I'm your host, Ian Lingen, here with John Hill and Ben Jeffrey to bring you our thoughts from the trading desk for the upcoming week of June 8th. And a reminder, it's only okay to miss a payrolls forecast by 10 million jobs if everyone else does it too. The views expressed here are those of the participants and not those of BMO Capital Markets, its affiliates, or subsidiaries. Each week, we offer an updated view on the U.S. rates market and a bad joke or two. But more importantly, the show is centered on responding directly to questions submitted by listeners and clients. We also end each show with our musings on the week ahead. Please feel free to reach out on Bloomberg or email me at ian.lyngen at bmo.com with questions for future episodes. We value your input and hope to keep the show as interactive as possible. So that being said, let's get started. It was a defining week in the Treasury market. Not only did the range that had been in place in 10-year yields finally break, but it did so ahead of a massive upside surprise in the non-farm payrolls report. Now, the 10 million job surprise did serve to further extend the sell-off in treasuries, with 10-year yields making significant progress toward a one-handle. The peak at roughly 95 basis points takes out all the technical roadblocks to a return above 1%. Now, we've been maintaining our end-of-the-year forecast for 10-year yields to end in a range between 125 and 150, so we take a great deal of solace in the move, if for no other reason than it's the first time that the market has been back here that wasn't a function of the dash for cash that we saw in the middle of March. Given the magnitude of the surprise, there's really little other data of relevance on the horizon until we get the next employment report, and that will be at the beginning of July and for the month of June. Recall that there's been a debate in place about whether or not April will mark the depths of the recession or if May and June would experience similar weakness. The takeaway from the BLS data for the month of May was that, in fact, April might be the lows. We've been on about judging the relative success of the reopenings, and while there is still limited information, this will remain topical going forward. Our emphasis on the shape of the yield curve continues, and with 530s now near 130 basis points, we'll be tracking an upward sloping channel that suggests that we could be north of 140 by the end of June. It was little surprise to see the front end of the curve effectively unchanged following the employment report. Two-year yields only increased a net of one and a half basis points, well below 25 basis points, and that makes sense given the context of a Fed on hold for the foreseeable future with policy rates between 0 and 25 basis points. That isn't to suggest that we won't see a reasonable amount of variability within the less than 25 basis point range, but it does confirm our sneaking suspicion that the shape of the yield curve has devolved into nothing more than a directional trade. That said, additional steepening from here with an upward bias on risk assets appears to be the path of least resistance and the one that we're advocating at the moment. 
So it was a big week in the treasury market. We saw the top of the range redefined and, wait for it, a 10 million jobs beat on headline NFP. You make a good point, Ben. First time, long time to actually have a great deal to discuss in terms of price action in a given week. So it's notable, obviously, that the trend was already in place ahead of the exceptional non-farm payrolls print. Equities were rallying back towards levels not seen since before the pandemic. And of course, the longer end of the treasury curve had seen rates push higher. Now that we're through that 78 basis point threshold in 10-year yields, our next big target is going to be the handle change at 1%. The caveat here being that when we have moves such as this, which are effectively being driven by a paradigm shift in the macro narrative, that the rates market has a tendency to see these types of moves run. So whether it ends up being a convexity story that exaggerates it a bit further, whether it's general optimism that the depths of the initial recession were overestimated and a reflationary bias emerges next week will give us context for what the new range in 10 and 30-year yields will be. The front end of the curve will remain largely a function of monetary policy expectations, and I think that's important context as we go into the upcoming FOMC meeting. I agree with you that what we're watching right now is a recasting of the macro narrative. I guess when I'm thinking about it, I kind of see it as a calibration. Unemployment is still at 13.3%. Arguably, maybe there are some methodological things that you should add three percentage points to. But at the end of the day, it's really trying to figure out how bad was this shock and how quick will the recovery be? And that framework of Fed keeping rates very low until we've weathered the storm, which is probably a few years out, in addition to quantitative easing, potential yield curve control, and a slow grind back to where we were before, I think is still largely intact. The optimist in me, however, is looking at some of the May data coming out, and it's going to be the speed of that recovery that is going to be constantly recalibrated. So that's going to impact the belly of the treasury curve, equities and risk assets, much more so than the front end. You can look at two-year yields in response to NFP on Friday. They only increased a couple basis points. It was a very small move. So the idea that the Fed might hike before the middle of 2022 is still a very, very low probability. Instead, it's calibrating what does the world in 2025 look like? I also think it brings up the question whether or not the Fed's decisive and dramatic policy response might have been overdone. That has to be something that is on the mind of investors at this point. I'm not suggesting that the Fed shouldn't have done what they did. Given all the information that we had in March and April, the Fed's policy response made complete sense. But as we go forward, it wouldn't surprise me to see some of the market conversation shift towards Did the Fed do too much and therefore should they start scaling back, whether that's in the form of less outright bond buying in treasuries or mortgages or reevaluating some of the new programs that they introduced to help firms bridge the lockdown created by the pandemic? Ian, I think that's an excellent point and it's something I want to dive a little bit more into. If the Fed did too much in March and April, of course, we only know that with hindsight, Where might we expect the repercussions of doing too much to play out? 
to me, I kind of see two avenues that come to mind. One is inflationary pressure, and two is something on the financial stability front. In your conversations with clients, is there increasing chatter about either of those two concerns? Well, inflation has been something very much on the radar of many of the more bearish market participants. This is very similar to what we saw in 2009-2010, i.e. following a massive amount of policy accommodation, concerns about pricing pressure re-emerging seemed somewhat natural. So that had been around even before May's employment report. I would expect to see an acceleration of that chatter over the next week or so. In terms of broader stability within the financial system, and frankly, the risk of excessive leverage, that has been topical for a while as well. However, Friday's report will certainly exaggerate that. This then brings us to the important question, which is, what's the best way to gauge inflation expectations at this point in the cycle? Now, we have referenced 10-year break-evens in the past simply because it's a relatively liquid market within the tip space, and it's a number that's relatively intuitive to understand. I think technically, five-year, five-year forward inflation expectations tend to be a better gauge of what investors are thinking inflation will be in the medium term, and we know that the Fed does focus on some of the survey data, particularly the University of Michigan Inflation Expectation Series. Are there any other go-tos that we should be thinking about? One that comes to mind is the survey of professional forecasters. In addition to the University of Michigan, which is, you know, you call up a household and say, where's inflation going to be in five to 10 years? The survey of professional forecasters is kind of a more professional look at how economists across different organizations are thinking about inflation. And while you might not get a broad distribution of risk around that number, you can generally tend to see what the overall trend is. You know, is it stable at somewhere around 2%? Is it falling? Is it rising? And one of the reasons those are valuable is, Ian, as you mentioned, tips and break-evens have informational content, but they also can be highly correlated with kind of short-term factors such as volatility in oil, volatility in the value of the dollar, things that might not have persistent inflationary consequences for 10 years, but can have short-term distortions in the break-even market. And highlighting the relevance of some of those sentiment surveys, and not only inflation expectations, but just generally confidence as a whole. Following the data we've seen this past week, it will be very telling over the coming months how this sort of inflection in the job market story flows through to confidence on an individual level. We've talked before about how critical confidence is to inspire spending on the part of the individual, and with headlines around a quote-unquote swifter-than-expected recovery or a recession not as severe as originally anticipated, one would have to think that that will be a positive for spending, growth, and inflation going forward. So to some extent, what is at risk is the V-shaped recovery not only materializing, but becoming somewhat of a self-fulfilling dynamic, given that investors are more confident now that they see the data that the recession wasn't as bad as we thought it was going to be. Yeah, well said, Ian. And even the price reaction following the data on Friday, there was certainly a degree of already priced in evident in that. Now, sure, the numbers were strong, however you cut it. But the fact that leading into the employment report, there was already discussions on, well, maybe this wasn't so bad after all, I think plays exactly into that self-fulfilling prophecy notion. 
One point of nuance I guess I would make with all of this is we're in a period of relative optimism, not absolute optimism. At the end of the day, yes, the NFP figure was strong, but it comes on the tail of well below 50 ISM manufacturing, well below 50 ISM non-manufacturing, an expectation for Q2 GDP to be very negative. And while that possibility of a self-fulfilling V-shaped recovery is growing in probability, I'm skeptical that it's a done deal by any means. One client question we had this past week is, how are we thinking about state and local government employment? If you look at employment levels at local governments, it's upwards of 15 million people, state governments around five, so the combination around 20 million. That is almost seven times larger than federal employment. And one thing that's become increasingly topical is budget strains on state and local governments. If this leads to layoffs in that sector, this is one example of a dynamic that would slow the recovery even if the private side actually gets along going. So I'm not trying to be an overt pessimist here, but just keep it in the back of our minds that even after a plus 10 million beat in NFP, 10-year yields didn't even break 1% in the knee-jerk. So in a relative basis, certainly looks like it's improving, certainly looks like the probability of a V or swift recovery is growing, but it's going to be a long road for the next few quarters and years. Well, that actually does a very good job of articulating the difference between what we see in certain financial assets and presumably the realities of the real economy over the course of the next few quarters. We keep returning to the impressive price action in the equity markets, but I think that that warrants a nod because it is an expression of investors' confidence about not only the potential for a V-shaped recovery, but I would argue more so the market's belief that Powell and the FOMC will continue to do whatever is necessary to make sure that the economy ends this episode on as strong a footing as possible. This brings us to the looming FOMC meeting. Now, prior to the employment report, there had been conversations about will the Fed shift the way that it announces QE? Will the Fed transition more aggressively into forward guidance? Will the Fed introduce yield curve control? The one thing that the most recent update on the labor market does is it buys the Fed more time even if they ultimately do want to go the direction of yield curve control. And that was a notion that we saw expressed in our pre-NFP survey this past week. The consensus on the timeline for a potential rollout of yield curve control wasn't for another three to six months. So this fact, coupled with the jobs report, I think fits well with that the Fed can be patient narrative, especially given the realities of COVID-19. If in fact we do start to see a second wave, the experience of the past several months has bought Powell enough time to really evaluate what may or may not be necessary and hopefully avoid any decisions that ultimately risk some of those more widespread issues that John was talking about earlier coming to fruition. One of the issues that John has pointed out in the past and I think warrants addressing is the fact that in a pandemic situation where there are lockdowns, as we have seen, data collection becomes a challenge. It's really difficult to have faith and confidence in the economic data that we're seeing 
and if anything, Friday's employment report made it all the more challenging to look at the incoming data within the assurance that what we're seeing is accurate. That then, consistent with what you were saying, Ben, would lead the Fed to take a slower approach at any transition from the current policy stance. Yeah, there's an old joke that conducting monetary policy is like trying to drive a car looking at the rearview mirror. And it's all the more difficult if you can't even get a clear view out the rearview mirror. So it's hard for me to imagine that policymakers can have high conviction opinions on what's needed to be done if they don't even know where we're currently at. The one big risk is that the Fed tries to transition away from the massive amount of policy accommodation too quickly. And if we've seen anything from the Powell Fed, it's a willingness to err on the side of caution and accommodation rather than pull back too quickly. One thought here as we get closer to November, how do you think the timing of the U.S. elections factors into the Fed's calculus? Is this something that is completely overweighted, i.e. the Fed's going to do what the Fed's going to do? Does it reduce the probability of them taking any steps in September or October? Or does it just reduce the probability of them taking any additional steps in September and October as we get closer to Election Day? Well, one of the critiques that we've heard over the course of the last several years is that the Fed has become more politicized than it has been in the past. That hasn't been my takeaway from the policy action. What I have taken away is that the Fed is willing to do what needs to be done to ensure the health of the domestic economy whether that is dropping rates to zero, as we saw this year, or the fine-tuning efforts made in 2019. And while conventional wisdom says that the Fed won't do anything in the run-up to an election, what history suggests is that the Fed simply won't change the direction of the prevailing monetary policy stance. So, In the six weeks prior to the November election, I think it's unlikely that the Fed would start any normalization process or hike rates or do anything other than continue down the path of providing as much monetary policy accommodation as is needed. And the reason I think that timing is important is, Ben, you mentioned expectations for the rollout of yield curve control being three to six months in the future. Well, if we follow Ian's logic that they're going to kind of want to stay the course going into the election, that does raise the bar a little bit for rolling out yield curve control at the September or October meetings. And the timing this fall really is critical, even down to the day. Whereas usually there's a September and October Fed meeting, this year the quote-unquote October meeting actually falls on November 5th, right after election day. So presuming the results are in hand, that opens the door to a November or December meeting being the venue at which yield curve control is introduced. Now, obviously a lot of time between now and then, but that point in the calendar will certainly be interesting from a monetary policy perspective. And nothing says happy holidays like yield curve control. Well, at least YCC will keep the belly under control. Don't be a turkey. (laughs) In the week ahead the Treasury market will be tasked with continuing to digest the very strong employment report and figure out whether or not that means a U or V-shaped recession is more likely, or a W or a swoosh. In addition, we will hear from the FOMC, 
our biggest takeaway from the recent economic data is that the Fed does have time before they implement any new programs. And so we wouldn't be surprised to see an FOMC statement very consistent with assuring investors that they're going to continue to be accommodative for the foreseeable future and are willing to act if and when the realities of the outlook necessitate it. We'll be watching the 1% level in 10-year space. Given that we reached 95 basis points on Friday, it is not inconceivable that the market retests that as the month of June plays out. Let us not forget that we have inflation data as well, specifically the May CPI report. The consensus is currently for 0.0% month over month for both the headline and the core. Now, that's an improvement versus April's levels, where we saw headline drop eight-tenths of a percent and core decline by four-tenths of a percent. And it will be very fascinating to see whether or not some of the government stimulus programs to get money into the hands of people who have been furloughed or lost jobs because of the pandemic result in demand-side inflationary pressure. Within the details, we'll obviously be looking at things such as apparel prices, new and used vehicle prices, and of course, owner's equivalent rents and rents. In the wake of the employment report, the upcoming inflation data will be an important level-setting exercise as investors contemplate moving beyond the depths of the recession in the second quarter to what the third and fourth quarter might hold. We also do have a series of auctions, which should put further upward pressure on Treasury yields. On Tuesday, there is $29 billion worth of 10-year Treasuries to be auctioned off followed by Thursday when we see 19 billion in 30 years. Now these are reopenings and not refundings, and generally, at least as a theme, they tend to go better than the new issues. All else being equal, we'd also expect that the outright level of yields, given the recent sell-off, will make the auctions attractive to certain participants in the treasury market especially given the currency hedge adjusted returns. In contemplating the week ahead, one of our takeaways is to watch for volatility, both in the equity market, in and around the FOMC meeting, and obviously in treasuries, if for no other reason than the strong employment report has challenged some of the key assumptions brought into the month of June. And we've reached the point in this week's episode where we'd like to offer our sincere thanks and condolences to anyone who has managed to make it this far. And as we continue to ponder the payroll surprise, one thing is clear, it wasn't a good day for professional forecasters. Ah yes, the glass house. Thanks for listening to Macro Horizons. Please visit us at bmocm.com backslash macrohorizons. As we aspire to keep our strategy effort as interactive as possible, we'd love to hear what you thought of today's episode. So please email me directly with any feedback at ian.lingen at bmo.com. You can listen to this show and subscribe on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast provider. This show and resources are supported by our team here at BMO, including the FIC Macro Strategy Group and BMO's marketing team. This show has been produced and edited by Puddle Creative.
This podcast has been prepared with the assistance of employees of Bank of Montreal, BMO Nesbitt Burns Incorporated, and BMO Capital Markets Corporation. Together, BMO, who are involved in fixed income and foreign exchange sales and marketing efforts. Accordingly, it should be considered to be a product of the fixed income and foreign exchange businesses generally, and not a research report that reflects the views of disinterested research analysts. Notwithstanding the foregoing, this podcast should not be construed as an offer or the solicitation of an offer to sell or to buy or subscribe for any particular product or services, including, without limitation, any commodities, securities, or other financial instruments. We are not soliciting any specific action based on this podcast. It is for the general information of our clients. It does not constitute a recommendation or a suggestion that any investment or strategy referenced herein may be suitable for you. It does not take into account the particular investment objectives, financial conditions, or needs of individual clients. Nothing in this podcast constitutes investment, legal, accounting, or tax advice, or a representation that any investment or strategy is suitable or appropriate to your unique circumstances, or otherwise constitutes an opinion or a recommendation to you. BMO is not providing advice regarding the value or advisability of trading in commodity interests, including futures contracts and commodity options, or any other activity which would cause BMO or any of its affiliates to be considered a commodity trading advisor under the U.S. Commodity Exchange Act. BMO is not undertaking to act as a swap advisor to you or in your best interest in you, to the extent applicable, will rely solely on advice from your qualified independent representative in making hedging or trading decisions. This podcast is not to be relied upon in substitution for the exercise of independent judgment. You should conduct your own independent analysis of the matters referred to herein, together with your qualified independent representative, if applicable. BMO assumes no responsibility for verification of the information in this podcast. No representation or warranty is made as to the accuracy or completeness of such information, and BMO accepts no liability whatsoever for any loss arising from any use of or reliance on this podcast. BMO assumes no obligation to correct or update this podcast. This podcast does not contain all information that may be required to evaluate any transaction or matter, and information may be available to BMO and or its affiliates that is not reflected herein. BMO and its affiliates may have positions, long or short, and affect transactions or make markets in securities mentioned herein, or provide advice or loans to, or participate in the underwriting or restructuring of the obligations of issuers and companies mentioned herein. Moreover, BMO's trading desks may have acted on the basis of the information in this podcast. For further information, please go to bmocm.com slash macrohorizons slash legal.